Okay, so this movie has a bit of a reputation now. It was one of those things. Oh, Jesus. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> Demon. Uh, it was one of those things where... Pazuzu! Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are living the best life you can in San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are stalling for time. Uh, yes. <laughs> is there a murderer in the house? The gun to your head? Like, <laughs> um, stalling for time in more ways than one here where I am at. Today, uh, we're recording on the 22nd of October, um, which will be a, a few days before people are actually listening to this. But uh, but today marks the, the first day of the year that I took I took out my window unit, my air conditioner. Ah. I, I looked at the, the, the forecast for the rest of the week. It's not going to get above 60 um, for a while. So And the nights are going to get super cold. So hopefully... Um, I didn't put away that giant thing that's really heavy and annoying to lug around for no reason. And hopefully now that that window is closed, we'll get less ambient road noise and stuff from my side of the recording. Cool. Um, Actually, it's funny you bring up windows. We just got our windows redone on our house. Yes. And it is the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, We've been... (laughs) So our our house... um, we actually don't know how old it is because some of the records were lost. Um, but Which it also like, means it's haunted. Nah, I don't think it's that old. I don't think it's haunted old. Mm. Um, plus, I'm pretty sure that you get a good deal on haunted houses. Well, anyway, so it was like just single pane wood frames. Um, so we got them changed out. And man, I have been sleeping like a baby. It's great. Uh, we didn't have screens on our windows. Now I can open them up. Um, it no is bugs. Just, no, no bugs. It's great. It is. Mm-hmm. Welcome to boring adulting adult talk with, <laughs> with, with two nerds in their thirties. Um, yeah, uh, let's uh, let's talk insurance plans, my friend. Let's not. Uh, <laughs> so. Today, the movies we're going to be reviewing, we're doing a lot of new movies. We had plenty of choices as far as like horror streaming stuff that's out right now. So we're talking, we're going to finally get to The Babysitter 2, Queen Bee, is that what it's called? No, The, uh, <laughs> the Babysitter, Killer Queen. Killer Queen. Queen Bee would have made more sense because of her name. Y- yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that, that was released on Netflix actually kind of a while ago. Um, yeah, at the but beginning of the month, I think. People are still catching up with it. Uh, I think it was even older than that. But um, and, and then from Shudder, we're going to be talking about the Shudder original Scare Me. Um, and then at the end of the podcast for our streaming homework, we are going to be talking about uh, William Peter Blatty's Exorcist 3. AKA, AKA Legion. Legion from 1990. So we'll do, we'll get into all of that. But before we do that, we have some more horror content. Another survey that I posed to my little Facebook group, the Halloweenery Facebook group. Um, and actually, this was something you texted me earlier today. And I wasn't sure if we get enough responses, but we got a lot. 
And then I posted, what is everyone's favorite horror movie score slash soundtrack? Yeah, so get to thinking about that while I'm reading these. But uh, Rebecca Ayers says, the theme to Unsolved Mysteries still scares me. Hey, that's legit. It's, I mean. There's some good TV, like especially 90s, like ambient keyboard scores like that and uh, the X-Files. There are some. Twin Peaks is a classic. that can trigger me like uh the, the goosebump score oh yeah that actually <laughs> wasn't do, do, bad do, do, do. <laughs> uh the are you x-files of the dark? theme used to scare me because i didn't watch it when it was first airing because I, mm-hmm. I was too young to really appreciate it um but like if i didn't change the channel before it came on just the <laughs> the theme song would scare me enough that it would kind of ruin my night wow okay um, I used to get scared by shit pretty easily. Uh, I know, I know. Believe me. Uh, yeah, so there, there was that one. Um, the X-Files scene was included on the uh, one of the Pure Moods CDs. Remember that? Pure Moods? Yeah, There's- I remember that. Like, you're fucking <laughs> meditating to Inya, and then the X-Files theme comes on, and you're thinking about aliens fucking you? <laughs> no. No, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of stood out. Even then, I was like, oh, okay, that's a choice. Um, Carlin Donovan, uh, your old film teacher from ISU, says, whoa, tough call. At the moment, she's thinking a girl who walks home alone at night. Have you ever seen that one? I haven't yet. Um, You're I'm on a- your vampire kick. Yeah, I'm hoping to, to I gotta get moving. Uh, vampire Tober is almost over. Um yeah, I haven't seen oh. a girl walk home alone at night. I haven't seen, I haven't seen a lot of recent like sort of new takes on vampires. I haven't uh-huh. seen uh, like Let the Right One In or Let Me In, oh, uh, the American damn. remake. Let the Right One In is one of my favorite vampire movies ever. Um, yeah, I, I'm hoping to get to it. So uh, definitely watch that one. Let Me In's whatever. But okay, as much as I like Matt Reeves, that's I don't know my Chloe Moretz bias maybe like outweighs it. Mm, okay. um, that's fair <laughs> but yeah girl who walks home alone at night is less like a vampire movie and well it's kind of funny because we were talking about um uh only lovers left alive and yeah i think girl who walks home alone at night feels even more like a jim jarmusch movie than an actual jim jarmusch movie <laughs> um but yes they're both they're both cool and i don't remember its score but it has kind of like a spaghetti westernish score i believe okay uh, John Kuhn says, of all time, it's got to be Suspiria. Yeah, yeah so. that one's uh, the, what, the soundtrack by Goblin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm assuming he means the original. Not I haven't seen the remake, but I don't. I think haven't either. Got... That's on my list for the month, though, to, to, to see the remake, because it's, it's on Amazon, I think. And I've heard yeah, good things. It's, it's on my um, list, too. But yeah, I, I, the original right by now. Goblin is very atmospheric. Um, Deep Red, another Dario Gento film. Um, he also says uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, um, that's a good one. Yeah. Solid. Which is very subtle. It's a very subtle one. It's not like some of the more developed, like, John Carpenter scores that have yeah, more, that like, one's movements. Like, like, that's more just, like, tones and stuff. Like, it's based loosely on the the nursery thing. You know, the one, two, Freddy's coming for you. Like, the guy who made the score took like some of the notes from that and then rearrange them to have like a subtle sort of oh, call back to that. Like put it in a different key or something. 
not a different key, but just say like he used the same scale, but just in a different order. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know that. that much about music, but <laughs> no, <laughs> he I explained it on though. the thing. Uh, there was a thing like um, something about the Inception soundtrack where Hans Zimmer like slowed some like a me. I don't. I don't know enough to talk about this. Uh, let's <laughs> keep going. We are not musicians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Look it up. Look up Hans Zimmer Inception score. There was something. He slowed cool it down. I, th- I remember the special feature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Hillary Stevens, our friend, uh, says Return of the Living Dead, which in this case is more of a soundtrack thing. I don't remember there being a score. I'm sure there was. Um, but obviously, you know, the cramps and. Yeah. And all the punk uh, rock stuff that's in the uh, the soundtrack. Jeff Pier- another movie you just watched. Jeff Pearson says Lost Boys, which is definitely a he- a heavy yes. soundtrack laden film. But a uh, a great as one. far as like oh. vampire soundtracks. So for the listeners that maybe you're just starting this podcast now, um, I've been on a vampire movie kick for October and. Uh, I've been trying to like rewatch as many vampire movies as I can and catch ones I haven't uh, seen before. Um, and of them all, that one, Lost Boys, stands out by far with the best soundtrack. Like it's eighties oh, yeah. as fuck, but it is so good. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, it, even it, just the uh, the People Are Strange cover by Echo and the Bunnymen. Like that alone is a reason enough to buy the soundtrack, which I did. That's I actually one I would like to to pick up on vinyl. Mm-hmm. A pretty easy to find. Um, yeah. Uh, Carlin says uh, she's also a fan of the score for The Witch. Um, that one's very tony. Like, there's not a lot of like melody in that one. That's more just kind of like you know slowly played keys and violin and stuff like that. Just. I, there's, I guess there's kind of like a folksy like thing at the beginning, but yeah, it's not, I, it's I not, a, there's not a lot of soundtrack it. in that movie, period. But yeah, the, and the one that's there is very subtle. Um, uh, Poppy Estevez says The Lost Boys as well. She also says American Werewolf in London and Stand By Me. And she says, although some would say that's not a horror film, tell that to terrified nine-ish year old me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh Stand By Me has a really like well known like um you know kind of classic fifties uh pop music soundtrack. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um period soundtrack. Uh Chantel says It Follows comes to mind, as yep. well as Psycho. Those would definitely be on my list. It follows I love because it harkens it's very carpenter feeling. Right. Um but it like also, updated. Yeah. yeah, it it definitely does its own thing, but um like it's one of the ones that I think pulls off the sort of retro vibe because it it doesn't feel like it's pandering to that. Mhm. That one is is one of my favorites. Yeah, um, and and definitely times. adds a lot to the movie as well. Yeah. Um uh, Carlin comes back to say the Halloween score. I mean, yeah, you have to. Somebody has to say it. Yeah, if if nobody else said it, I, of course. I mean, of all of Carpenter's stuff, and he has a lot of good fucking scores. Um, right, because he wrote almost all of them. Yeah, for his movies. Uh, Prince of Darkness comes to mind as another one of my personal favorites. Um, uh, 
but yeah, Halloween is classic. Like, it, yeah, you can't beat it. It's so iconic that it's like, like it, it's it's like the movie score equivalent of Thriller, like Michael Jackson's Thriller. Yeah, like it, you hear it every Halloween, no matter what, um, and it always works. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, throw it on on your the background of your Halloween party. Um, Devore Kimbrough says, drag me to hell, which I have not seen, so I can't speak to its soundtrack. I um, can't remember the soundtrack. I, I saw it a long time ago, like when it first came out. Uh, she also says, the woman in black uh, hit my spooky spot. And okay, she cool. said she really liked the soundtrack to Sinister, another movie I have seen, but I, I don't remember the soundtrack to that. Um, Honestly, like, I don't notice a lot of movie soundtracks, especially upon first watch. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty rare that I do. So, like, a, a lot of the ones that stick out to me are for my perennial favorites. Right. The ones you've seen enough times. Yeah. Where you your ear is picked up on it. Totally. So, what are yours? Um... Yeah, Halloween, of course, is a big one. Um, we're we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more later today, but um, uh, The Exorcist, another iconic... Uh, uh, tubular Bells. Yeah. Yeah, which was um, actually written as a, a piece of music. I believe the actual was piece... Was it chamber music? Um, no, it was written by a person... I, there's actually there's lore to tubular yeah. bells. Yeah, um, and, and, and also the, the original piece is actually something like an hour or even longer than that, and they only use like a tiny little section of it for the exorcist, and it, it, it has multiple movements that are very unlike that part. I also um, heard a, a thing about how the composer of it again. I don't know enough about music. Look, look this shit up. There's mm-hmm. more stuff but i i heard a thing about how like the composer like kept adding to it and so like mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of different versions of it um uh kind of like the exorcist which is kind of fun yeah wikipedia tubular bells and you can read all about that but it's um yeah i mean you know even just the section that most people know is super iconic for the for its use in the exorcist but i think my uh my absolute number one go-to spooky spot music it works for me every time i hear is the the theme song to the shining that just right the uh score uh which there's a very interesting video I saw on YouTube about those, those like, I don't know how many notes there there are, and how it's actually like variations of that have been used since like the Middle Ages when um, referring to death and, and inferring death and stuff. Are they, I are they like tritones, like that kind of thing? Yeah, I... I'll try yeah. to find the the YouTube video I watched on it, and I'll so try there to was send a, it to you. Uh, back in the day, like when there was like the Puritans and stuff like that, and m- the only people who were allowed to make music were the church. Basically, were allowed mm-hmm. to like engage in literature and art and music. Um, they were forbidden to use tritones because they thought it would actually invoke 
Satan because they sound evil. And cool. that's what that's <laughs> pretty much what Black Sabbath based their entire first album on was tritones. That's oh my god, that's <laughs> fucking badass. Holy shit. Uh I mean a, you made Black Sabbath way fucking cooler, and they're pretty fucking cool. They're pretty already. fucking cool. I mean, the first album opens <laughs> with a tritone, the doom, 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 doom. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, it, yeah, but yeah. So there's a video uh, I saw on YouTube where it like collects different movies that specifically use that. Uh, I, I think it must be tritones. Yeah. Uh, I'll try to send it to you. Maybe we can or minor the key. Or the, any anytime you do anything in minor key, it's going to yeah. sound spookier, sadder, or whatever. Well, I mean, the big thing right now is uh, like slowing something down to like three fourth speed and, and right. doing a minor key, and then putting it in a soundtrack. Like taking a happy song. Uh, I saw a thing on Twitter. It was like. What 80s song would you put in, uh, <laughs> would you slow down and put in a minor key for your horror movie? <laughs> right. Yeah. It, 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 especially for trailers. Yeah. I kind of want to blame the social network sound uh, trailer for starting that trend, but yeah. Uh, so what are your, what are your I'm trying to see if there's movies? anything that wasn't covered already. We talked about The Shining. We talked about Psycho. Um, and... Uh, we talked about It Follows. All of those are on my list. I also want to throw a shout out for Howard Shore. He does a lot of great scores. Yeah. Specifically, his scores for Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. and um, David Cronenberg's Crash. That one I don't know, but... Um, both of those are like super atmospheric and they're different because the one for Silence is, I think, more orchestral and the one for Crash is more like synthy and and more um like keyboard kind of stuff. Mm. Uh but yeah, I I like I like his stuff in general and um those two come to mind. Are we going to are we I feel like we should at least give a shout out even though I I think some horror hounds might take umbrage with this, but let's I think give a shout out to uh John Williams, you know, like Jaws. Oh sure. Uh, yeah. One of the most iconic horror scores. Um I think we could count Jurassic Park. It's pop blockbuster horror, but it, sure. it definitely has some horror to it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just saying, I think that it, those at least deserve an honorable mention. Yeah, I guess. I, I specifically, a step for Jaws, I think, maybe fits that the most. I mean, he's basically doing like the psycho violence just like with a cello. <laughs> yeah. And uh, lower key. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, there's that. We got three movies to talk about, so let's just dive into it. Let's do it. Um, let's start with Babysitter 2, Killer Queen, not Killer Bee. <laughs> um, and I'll let you describe that. What's happening in Babysitter 2? Okay. Also, fair warning, um, this is a sequel to a movie called The Babysitter, a Netflix original movie. Um Yes. As such, we're going to be covering spoilers for Babysitter, the first yes. one. Um, so if you haven't seen it, pause, go watch it, come back. Um, so Watch both worry. of them. Watch two movies, then come and finish the rest of this podcast. <laughs> yes. Uh, you have a lot of homework. You better get to it. Uh, you know, the workday is a busy day, but you can get it done. 
Uh, we're very disappointed in you that you haven't already. Anyway, um, yeah, so this is a sequel to The Babysitter. Uh, this takes place a few years after the incident uh, in the original movie. Um, the main character, Cole, is in high school now. Um, he survived the blood cult, and uh, but nobody believes him. B's body wasn't there, um, so everybody thinks he kind of went... Uh, and we already know that they cleaned up the other bodies uh-huh. uh, uh, that happened in the first one. Um, yeah, so there wasn't really anything to corroborate his story. Um, it just seemed like he crashed a car into their ha- uh, parents' house. Um, For no reason. Yeah. <laughs> right. So everybody thinks he's crazy. Um, his parents are trying to get him to take meds. They're trying to, uh, take him to, uh, pull him out of high school and take him to like a psychology school or psychiatric school or something. Um, when his next door neighbor and best friend from the first movie invites him away to, to go away for the weekend to go party on this lake. Kind of a I mean, Lake Havasu-ish looking place. They did. Did they ever say where it was? No, they just said the lake. I. I mean, yeah. they never really said where the first one was. I'm getting, you know, like Orange County vibes. Yeah, it's um, Southern California somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so a nondescript lake where uh, apparently kids just go fucking crazy for the weekend. It's yeah. like spring break there. Yeah, that's um, why. I, that's why I said Havasu. That's a, kind of a spring spring break location. Gotcha. Um, as he's there, hanging out with his friends, he thinks he's having a good time. I guess, spoilers? Uh, I already gave you the spoiler warning, so fuck off. Um, <laughs> the weekend doesn't go according to plan, and he is has to deal with the blood cult all over again. They have resurrected from hell somehow. Um, and, yeah, and, and along the way... Um, he makes a, a new friend who helps him get out of various uh, sticky situations. Right. And who is the who's playing his best friend? Okay, or his, his new friend, rather. Y- yeah. So there's this new girl in school. Uh, the character's name is Phoebe, played by Jenna Ortega. Um, right. And she is sort of like a weird, you know, another weird kid in school. Um, An outcast. An outsider, yeah. Uh, His friend from the first movie was Melanie, who was played by Emily Allen Lind, um, who you might recognize from Doctor Sleep. Ah, yes, she was in that. Yeah, she was was the one, the pedo hunter. Yeah, 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 yeah. I liked her better in that. Yeah, me too. Um, Yeah, uh, and... And I guess that's a good segue. Let's let's get into it. Um, is that a good enough setup? I don't know. That'll do. That'll do. Um, yeah, I didn't like this movie much at all. Um, and I was a fan of the first one. I really liked uh, The Babysitter. And, you know, I thought it was like a kind of came out of nowhere surprise thing on Netflix that happened mm-hmm. to be like hit a kind of tricky tone. That's sort of like violent uh horror comedy but with a lot of action movie sensibility this is made from mick g who did both of them 
It's um, not too scary, but it is really violent. Um, yeah, but it yeah. like it, it like it knows how to deal with gore, and it knows like kind of what the audience wants from that, and it its tone is pitched just right. And then on top of it, it's the movie that introduced me and maybe a lot of people to Sam- Samara Weaving, who is just a delight. Um, yeah. So now that you talk about what you liked from the first from one, the first I- one. Yeah, let's, I I do let's I agree it. with you that this one is definitely a case of diminishing fucking returns. Yeah, this is sequelitis on steroids. Yeah, part of me wonders, uh, and may, maybe I'm giving McGee a little too much credit here, but part of me wonders if that is slightly intentional. Um, you know, uh... because they are kind of riffing on. Uh, it's self-aware. You know. Both of them are. Um, this came out the same year as uh, Happy Death Day, and they were both kind of like similarly toned horror comedies that were dealing in tropes, like mm-hmm. well-worn horror movie tropes, um, and then having fun with them. Uh, and also like for a younger kind of pop audience. So, yeah, I think I think both movies are... Self-aware, um, both uh, uh, babysitter movies, and I think it, it, it. There's a couple jokes in here that are obvious callbacks to the original. Like, isn't this crazy? This is happening again, but bigger. Um, yeah, like it. It it winks at the camera a decent amount, and maybe that's partly why it's annoying. But also, that is totally why it's annoying. Like the the. <laughs> uh, I'll give you an example in the first movie the. Th- in the first movie, um, what's her name's character? The one, the OnlyFans millionaire, um, uh, Bella Thorne. In the first <laughs> movie, she gets shot in the boob. And right. then this movie contrives a whole fucking stupid ass scenario to also shoot her in the boob. And it's like, come on. Like, we don't need to retread every fucking joke from the first movie. Yeah. So I I will say I didn't hate this movie, um, but it really did kind of annoy me and frustrate me a lot because the I I like you I liked the first one. It's kind of a breath of fresh air. It kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. But the first one is a little. I mean, the first one is a lot more grounded than this. First of all, well, um, I mean, to an extent, yeah. No, I think it totally is. I mean, yes, there's a satanic blood cult, but like <laughs> they aren't literally resurrected from hell for reasons and for rules that are never totally explained. You know why um, they're resurrected from hell? Because, because the writer of this film was terrified to come up with a new idea. That's that's the only reason these characters come back. And this is my biggest beef with it. And I think yeah. what the foundation for why everything sort of falls apart is because we bring back those characters for no reason. Yes, we already absolutely. have new characters that they introduce that, that they, they just kill off like immediately for no reason. And so that we can just do the same movie again, but in a way less interesting location. I didn't like the outdoor setting, like them being no. able to just go miles and miles in the in this dark desert that's not really appealing to look at. You can't really like totally. we never like I, I it doesn't have agree. the architecture of like that of the small suburban neighborhood. 
Well, and and I feel like there's the, no stakes because it's out. They're just shooting a movie in the middle of the desert. Exactly, and I feel like the first one harkens back to movies that are like you know, like the the uh, we kind of talked about this with Fright Night. The, yeah, totally. The kid that figures out something bad is going on in a suburban neighborhood subgenre, like uh, like Fright Night, like the uh, Burbs, like yeah. you know, all this stuff of like. Nobody's going to believe me because we live in fucking the suburbs. And and I think that added a lot to the first movie. And I think they could have done something similar in in a way that makes it, you know, like if we're doing a fucking like high stakes spring break thing, set it at spring. Yeah. Yeah. Set it at like a fucking Pismo Beach in Florida on is that where the kids go in spring break? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't uh, think so. But you know, like <laughs> set it in in Miami or whatever. Like set yeah. it in a much more public location. And and yes, we did not need to bring back the characters. If you are going to bring those characters back, let's at least let's at least dive into that mythology because that is what really frustrated me. It's so lazy. They they literally like break their own rules all the time and the oh, rules death is so... completely meaningless in this movie so once they come back you have no reason whatsoever to give a shit about when anyone lives or dies for the rest of the movie exactly it's literally just an excuse to have uh the most outlandish horror movie deaths you can think of yeah and which that... you can do with anybody you don't need those characters but the like i said the writer was terrified to write new characters. It was much easier just to pick those characters back up. We already know who they are and how they I, act. I don't what know what lines if it was, they would say. Uh, I don't know if this was a writer was terrified so much as like this felt more like a sort of like a corporate finger to me. Oh, like well, a for pro- sure. Like we know. Like a producer's thing. Like uh, the guy with, you know, the, the guy without a shirt on was a hit. Uh, and. He is also probably my favorite character in this one as well. Um, you know, so let's bring him back because everybody liked him. But it's like, why don't we try to apply what made those characters fun? Yeah. And and do it to new characters. And they already that's what's frustrating, is like they set up these this new satanic blood cult and I and it, And then just undo like, it and like immediately. And and here's a spoil. Uh, okay, again, more spoilers. Um, his friend, uh, mm-hmm. the the little girl across the street from the first one, turns on him in a heel turn that to me was totally unbelievable um, and unearned, and also like just completely tone deaf to what the audience wants. Exactly. Like maybe I'm wrong. Like tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong. But like when that happened, I I wasn't like oh shit. I was like oh that sucks. Like, yeah. that sucks for the character, that sucks for this movie, and now I'm, like, way less invested in whatever's going to happen, because I thought that that was the core relationship of the movie, and now, and I understand that the first one kind of did that, too, but in that film, it's it feels like a genuine twist, whereas in this film, it's just like, let's shit on a character for no reason. Yes, and also, I think a big difference between this and that and the first one is, even though... B turns out to be uh uh you know the the head of this satanic blood cult she's still a sympathetic character in a lot of ways like she's a horrible murderer but she her affection for Cole is still very clear 
And like you can tell through the whole movie, she's just like, come on, don't fucking do this. You're making this, you're blowing this out of proportion and I don't want to hurt you. Where in this movie, they totally just disregarded everything we already knew about this character and was like, she's just an evil bitch. Right. Uh, yeah. So I, that was really frustrating. And, and I think they could have, they could have done that, but in an interesting way. Like, I think, you know, let's delve into her motivation. Maybe she was a witness to this blood cult. So she wanted to know what, you know, so that's how sort of her entry way into it. And again, like, let's not just turn her into an evil bitch for no reason. And, right. and you know, like, like maybe wouldn't it be interesting if she was like trying to get Cole to be a part of this blood cult versus, oh, we're going to sacrifice him again because he's so innocent and blah, blah, blah. It, it literally is just retreading the beats of the first movie, but let's try to make it more outlandish or more whatever. Yeah. The only stuff from this film that I thought worked or that I was at least kind of a new idea was the stuff between Ken Marina and uh, what's his name? Wild. The, uh, yeah. The other guy. Who plays dad. her father. Um, uh, Chris Wild. Yeah. yeah. Uh, their little B plot. And it's a very small B plot. But this, whenever it cut to them, I was at least like, okay, well, this is at least something it wasn't in the first one. Um, let's see where this yeah. goes. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. And I kind of like the new character, the, the, the yeah, female I liked, character. I wish they would have committed more to her and I get, yeah, build I, that I feel up. like exactly this movie is, is trying to throw a lot of new stuff out, but also at the same time, retread everything from the first one. It's like, there's enough here that you could have just committed to some new ideas. Right. Versus, like, it, it, this movie feels frustrated to me. Like, it's it, like, wants to do these other things, but it feels like, ah, but this is a sequel, so we gotta do the stuff that that you want. Um, right, and even the, also, the sight gags and stuff aren't as good or as creative. Uh, some of the kills are a little kind of fun, and, and uh, you know, if you're watching a horror movie for that, I think there's some fun to be had. I do think there's some fun to be had in this movie, but again, case of diminishing returns, not nearly as clever or as charming as the first one. And I think the biggest sin of this movie, again, kind of kind of a spoiler, um, you have Samara Weaving, but you're not going to use her at all? Well, I don't think they had her that much. I think they would have liked to have had her in the movie more than they do. I think they put her I would have liked to have her in the movie more than they did. God, yeah. But I think she was in there when she could come and do it. Hmm. I mean, I guess she probably would have been busy with Bill and Ted 3 at the time. Uh, I just... Even her small part in the movie is immediately more relatable. um, Yeah, I hate what they did with her, though. Again, it was another thing of just like, well, remember that thing? Well, fuck that. Like, it just... It totally loses its nerve on every bold choice the first one made. Yeah. And I, undoes everything for no reason whatsoever other than to pander to an audience that is not as, uh, you know, this isn't like 40 years later we're doing Babysitter 2 and that there's been this building audience. Yeah. We just barely learned to love the first one. So 
this is like, I think this is the worst kind of sequel you could make right after it. If anything, I, I would have, mm. I would have even like fucked off with the main character and just have a whole new cast and a whole I new would, neighborhood. Because I would have liked that more. Uh, the mythology you know, is more interesting than the characters. And, and that was something that also the first movie, I think, you talk about the mythology, but neither movie is really interested in the mythology. Like, No. Uh, it's pretty basic, like, blood sacrifice stuff. But you can um, expand on it or whatever. Exactly. That's what I wanted from both movies. Like, there's enough of a premise here that, like, I want to know the rules. Tell me the fucking rules. <laughs> Uh, you know, instead of making the shirt joke three more times, why isn't this guy wearing a shirt? Okay, we get it. He doesn't like shirts. Uh, instead of making that joke over and over and over again, let's lay out some fucking blood cult rules. Let's have fun with it. Yeah. I Now, I do think there is still an audience for this movie. I, I think... I you know it's still kind of slasher by way of Scott Pilgrim. I I think there is there's enough fun jokes that if you enjoyed the first one, you're probably gonna be okay with this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I'm frustrated because the first one I think was better better than they realized, and this one could have been so much more. Right, yeah. The first one was like, holy shit, that was really good for a McG film. This one, it's like, oh, it's a McG film. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, And, you know, it does, I think, follow sort of the tradition of horror sequels of like, uh, this is a very common problem. Let's do the same thing over and over again. Um, Or the other problem with horror sequels is let's just go totally off the fucking rails uh, I would have rather that. I'd have rather a, mo- a bolder, messier film than what they did, which is just to retread everything. L- literally, yeah. Uh, I I agree. I think this was pretty frustrating. Um, again, there's some <sighs> fun and there's a few jokes, I think, that land. But, um, uh, you know, and it's still poppy enough that at least you're not going to be bored with it. Um, but it's it's pretty much not good. Yeah, I am giving it a D plus, and I feel like that's generous. Uh, <laughs> I give it a C minus. Um, yeah. Again, I still think it's watchable, and I I feel like it falls into the horror sequel category enough that I'm I guess I'm pretty forgiving of its sins because i've seen enough bad horror sequels right um but as meta as the first one was this movie should have been aware of those problems and you know we're living we are living in a post scream 2 world um so right it it is a little hard to forgive but still i'll I'll give it a c minus all right uh let's go ahead then and talk about scare me which is the original film that was made for shutter it was an original film that was made, and then Shutter probably bought it after some festival or something. But it's an independent film, uh, written and directed, and also starring Josh Rubin. Um, Josh Rubin plays Fred. He is a frustrated thirty-something uh, advertiser, av- uh, copywriter, 
um, who goes to a cabin to work on his horror project, his, you know, creative project. He's going through some relationship stuff, trying to get his mind off of it, trying to get this creative thing off the ground. While he's out there, he runs into another writer. He runs into uh, Fanny, played by Aya Cash, who is a successful horror writer. She wrote a YA zombie survival novel um, that got her some amount of attention um, from the press. And they are kind of in neighboring cabins in the woods uh, in the middle of one of the nights. They're staying there. There's a giant storm that and a giant power outage. And Fanny comes to visit Fred and uh, asks him to keep her company, essentially, while they're waiting for the power to come back on. And they decide, or she decides for them, that they're going to tell each other scary stories and try and scare each other with their imaginations. And what you kind of get from this film, and what I I think is its selling point, uh, and it's the conceit that will either make it or break it for you, depending on how you feel about the execution of the selling point, is you get what's essentially a anthology film. This is like an anthology horror film, like Creepshow or Tales on the Dark Side or Black Sabbath or what have you. Um, but all of the stories are, we never go into scenes. So when they're telling their stories, we just mm. see them perform the the segment or the vignettes. We see them perform them. And the only thing that really changes is the lighting and the soundtrack and the sound design, which sort of acts out uh, or turns cinematic these campfire stories that they're trying to freak each other out with. Um, yeah, as as their stories go on, as you get more into them, the they become more dramatized. More into them, and and the line starts to blur between you know the fantasy and the reality, but never going full fully. Um, like never, never doing what a normal anthology series would do, and like you said, cutting to the actual scene. Yeah, with with sets and and you know different um, actors and stuff like that. It, it it always stays within the framing device of these characters, but it plays out these stories very much like an anthology horror film, and that's mm -hmm. kind of what I thought it was going to be. Um, when it kind of starts this conceit of, oh, we're going to tell each other scary stories. I was like, oh, this is an anthology film. I'm here for it. Yay. Yes. Um, and that was my exact, <laughs> my exact reaction too. And, and as, as I realized it wasn't strictly a, a typical anthology film, I was both a little bit disappointed, mm -hmm. but then also like, ooh, this is, this is different. Yes. And me, yes. me likey. I, um, this to me is like the opposite of my experience with The Babysitter 2. Um, I fucking love this movie. That's good. Cause I, I was actually like a little nervous cause I also fucking love this movie. That doesn't surprise me at all. This is like an improviser's wet dream of a film. <laughs> so this movie, a couple things about this movie also is it kind of feels like a, it could be a stage play almost because yeah, it's like definitely. one location. It's, you know, two to three characters at the most. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, and it's also very minimal. Yeah. And it also is 
pretty funny. Um, uh, very funny. Very written. And I was when I first when the movie first started, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, or if the if maybe just uh, Ruben got more like uh, bravado in his his visual direction as the film goes on. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, films are generally not shot in sequence anyway, so who knows what was the first stuff shot? But when it first yeah. starts, it looks really low budget. Um, yeah. And I was kind of nervous. I was like, is this even a real movie or is this like some dude's project that got put on <laughs> Shutter? Because they do that. Um, I, I think this is kind of blurs those lines between like, I, I think it, it feels like it started as some dude's project, but somewhere it gets along too the way. Good. Like there's a point in yeah. the film when they cut into story mode when it gets way too deliberate and way too well shot and way too uh, totally. well paced and edited to be well, amateur hour. It's, I and, and that's what sold me on this movie was uh, pretty quickly during one of the first stories. Yeah. You're like, oh. Oh fuck! Okay, cool. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Uh, and uh, no, like they they start changing the camera angles and they... the lighting, uh, and the and the sound design is doing. I mean, this is a you know, if you were teaching a class and you wanted to do a day on sound design, I would mm-hmm. show one of the segments from this film because it's doing so much heavy lifting, uh, in the and the score as well. But it's, I mean, it's also like, I mean, it started out almost kind of mumblecore adjacent Mm -hmm. and then it really develops into something else. It's also, uh, I mean, I think this is kind of everybody's dream project to work on. Like, uh, you know, the editing gets to do a lot of fun Mm -hmm. stuff. The, the camera people get to do a lot of stuff. Uh, it's an actor's dream because, they get to act out these stories. Yeah. They do, you know, all these different Ton of monologues. Yeah. One. Uh, yeah. It, it, the and Very funny. So not only are these stories really interesting with a lot of stuff they can kind of show off, uh-huh. the characters are really well written and really interesting. Uh, and they delve into a lot of really cool character stuff outside of the stories too so yeah. like it's and through the stories their characters are informed by yeah. the stories they're telling and the way that the characters interact because they'll they'll be telling their story and then one will interject with a question or give the give the other another idea and they're kind of like it's like writer's room the motion picture yeah. like it's yeah. you know but in a way that doesn't feel masturbatory in a way right. that feels like real because because every not everything is perfect that they come up with, you know, they brainstorm some some shit and and it feels very like it feels very honest. It feels very like it doesn't feel like ooh, this is my project to show off, you know, these characters are very flawed and and you know, the stories they create are flawed, but yeah. It they it's so fun to watch the process. The, uh, going back to the Mumblecore thing, there was a film that the Duplass brothers did very early on in their career called Baghead, um, which was kind of in this ballpark. You know, it's a Mumblecore thing, so it's about a group of 20-somethings dealing with relationships and shit and going mm-hmm. off, you know, in a secluded location and the situation making them hyper aware of the bullshit that they brought to the vacation – but it also like wraps into this like uh, cabin in the woods horror movie thing, kind of like they subvert that in their own way. Mm. Um, but 
this to me feels like a more fully realized version of that idea. Cause okay. mom, I mean that film works and doesn't work in certain ways, but this film I think feels like a, just a bolder, punchier, more tightly written uh, execution of a similar idea. Because actually another film that I thought of, which is not as related, but I thought a lot of the film uh, Colossal uh, starring. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, kind of like a, a, a yeah, no, I, I get what, I get what you're getting at. It's like, yeah, where you're dealing with these gender dynamics and you're, you're dealing with you're the, dealing the true, with genre the stuff. true stuff about the characters are emphasized through genre. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I had a lot. Of, I had so much fun with this movie. This was like a, a, a little, a rare little gym. Yeah. Um, that I, I, I actually pretty much only watched it because Aya Cash is in it, and I fucking love her. Um, right. Uh, she's she in the was, boys, right? She's in the boys. Mm-hmm. Um, very different character in that. Uh, she's in. She was in. You're the worst. That show. I've talked about that on. Yeah, the yeah, podcast yeah. I've heard things. Time. Um, you know, I just love her. I I think she's really funny and clever and and just a really good actress. And I and think so I, I, both characters, both actors yeah. have a lot to work with, but they also have to tread a really fine line because they both characters are dangerously close to unlikable to the point that it's hard to go with it. Um, that is Aya Cash's M.O. It like, has to be because she is on thing. that razor's edge the whole movie. She she is in everything I've seen her in. Uh, she's uh, she's going to yeah. be in a Noah Baumbach film and it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I Totally. Yes, I yeah. could. I could totally see that. Um, yeah. And and I also think, you know, this movie it is an anthology thing, but it also builds to some very real, very cool, very scary uh, tension uh, in its own right. It's yeah. it's it's using stories to tell one story, which I yeah. think is also really interesting. I think that is another thing that kind of separates it from the more uh, the anthology stuff we're familiar with is like these stories serve a purpose and they build to to a point like scare me is its own movie. It's not just these a framing device stories. to hang these yeah. stories on. Yeah. The, and the best anthology, the best anthology films, always the framing device ha- is more well integrated than yeah. some of the lesser ones. Um, and I think, you know, this was an exercise in that. Uh, yeah. I fucking love this. Uh, now I'm, oh, it's also really, it's also really fucking funny. It's too. hilarious. It's so well written. Yeah, the humor, the humor works at least for me in a way that not a lot of comedies I've seen lately have. Uh, it's it's so character driven and so honest, um, and and relatable in ways that uh, make you feel a little bad about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Cuts a little too close to home sometimes. No, yeah. for sure. Uh, Chris Red. Um, from is he on Saturday Night Live? I uh-huh. to say, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, Rebecca Drysdale play two smaller characters who pop up in the film. They they don't have as much to do, but they make a ton of use of their time when they mm-hmm. are there. They're both very very funny. Um, yeah, Rebecca. Uh, I mean, Chris Red is uh, he's kind of a, a 
a dependable commodity right. at this point. Like he's kind of a bankable, like you know he's gonna pop in his cameo kind of. Yeah, actor. and he, he's he's always gonna be really likable and and like immediately like steal a scene or whatever. Yeah, yeah uh, but Rebecca Drysdale, I've never. I've never heard from her or Josh Rubin before, mm-hmm. um, and both of them I am going to be very interested. Uh, I could see Rebecca Drysdale doing a lot of uh, great small character work. She's super familiar to me. I mean, I'm looking at her thing now. I guess she was in um, Enough Said, which I remember liking, but I don't remember her in it. Um, she's yeah, but she's credited as female hiker number two. <laughs> <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Like so I, I don't know. I, she seems like the kind of person who just hasn't had that time to shine yet. Um, like she did in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, she seems very sort of. Uh, I guess she was in like, Thirty Rock. She was in Kroll Show. So she's been around the comedy world. Yeah. Um, I'm sure she's probably a well-known improviser or something like that. But she's very funny in the, as as a Uber driver in this. Um, and yeah, I guess my only thing is I'm a little, I'm, I'm less conflicted about it now than I was yesterday when I watched it, but mm-hmm. I wasn't sure about the final turn of the characters in the film. It was a situation where I was like, ah, did I really want them to like go there? Like I was, I was kind of like, yeah, you, you, I mean, and the it movie- almost crosses a line with the characters where I'm like, oh, like, did we have to? And then, but the and more the I thought about plays- it, I was like, and that's when I thought of Colossal, because yeah. that plays a similar, has a similar kind of thing with the Jason Sudeikis character um, and the, um, uh, what's her name? Whatever uh, her name uh, is. Anne Hathaway. <laughs> Anne Hathaway. Like the way their relationship kind of plays out through that film. I think that that is. What makes this movie work, though, you know, when mm-hmm. likable characters do very unlikable things, it's hard. It's it's hard to watch. Mm-hmm. And, and it isn't and, it's not like it comes out of nowhere. They definitely like put the red flags there for you to know that, that it's to not be surprised by that. But I was still like, I don't know, maybe it's a situation where it's like you see yourself too much in a character or something like that. Yeah. 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 I, I personally, I. I know what you're talking about, and I was, I was bummed by it, but in the best way possible. But also in not like surprised. A, yeah, yeah. In a in a oh fuck, this is so good. Like that dramatic tension is so good, kind of way. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I fucking loved this movie. I, I and I, I've kind of been telling uh, everybody to watch it because uh, a I think this is a great. Uh, spooky halloween time movie but also just a great comedy and it's it's spooky in a way that's not alienating like it's it has fun with the the scariness like that's sort of the whole idea is like being scared can be fun um so let's play with that so i think you know this is a good one for people who might not be as comfortable i just thought about josh rubin's troll impression impersonation (laughs) and it started making me laugh (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, it's so funny. Um, it's so it's so fun, and I think it also speaks really well to Shutter's original content. Yes, like, more of this. If I mean, it, right now, you know, it's a five dollar a month app, and people just kind of download it around Halloween to get access to a few more movies. Um, and it's it's a pretty small app. There's not a ton of content on there, but if they keep this kind of quality up, 
and host, which I haven't seen, but got a lot of buzz this year uh, too. Yeah. Um, if they keep it going and they get more stuff like this under their belt, of course, right now with the whole fucking pandemic, like all projects who, are kind yeah, of paused. But I saw this other movie, this other Shutter original mm-hmm. that was really fucking weird. Like <laughs> I, I can't say it's a good movie. It's indescribably weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but. It was very interesting. It was very, like, I sort of had to finish it to see how it played. It felt very, like, Adult Swim, like, uh, like we don't know kind of where the line we're treading over is, mm-hmm. but we're going to fucking tread all over it kind of thing. So, I definitely, I'm, I'm not just, I'm not going to roll my eyes when I see Shudder Original. Like, No, there's no reason. Uh, this is as good as anything that could come out of Netflix or Hulu or whatever. Um I think this is I think this really is better good. than a lot of Netflix stuff because the script is so tight in a way that Netflix originals usually aren't because they kind of they're in a mode right now where they're just sort of throwing money at stuff um and just sort of letting well people... Netflix has almost become we're on a tangent now but Netflix has almost yeah. become a <laughs> a microcosm of the of the larger movie world where at the beginning of the year, it's shitty movies. And then in the summer, yeah. they have kind of action movies. And then, then they put their good stuff at the last three or two or three months for consideration. Um, and that's, I mean, they're big enough now that they are just, they can make a more of a wider spectrum of quality content. They can have trash projects and they can have good yeah. projects. Whereas Shudder, they're so new and they're still trying they're, to get established. They're building that, yeah. They, they don't want to put a bunch of junk on there except for you know the junk from the 80s that people want to watch on purpose yeah yeah the the junk that is sellable as a junk commodity right catalog titles and stuff like that yeah uh okay so what are you going to give i give it an a i give it an a because it surprised me so much and it was it's so recommendable i could see some people especially like the shutter types Mm-hmm. Um, watching this and going, what the fuck? This is not a horror film. Yeah, I can see <clears> that too, but I don't. I think it's adjacent enough that I that it works for the for the platform, and it's great for like especially normies around this time of year to watch it and just enjoy something spooky without having to watch something gory or something satanic yeah. or whatever. Um, but I, I could I... see like the hardcore horror hounds uh, being disappointed, sure. but you know yeah. they're wrong. But yeah, I no, I give this an A plus. I think yeah. uh it is a, an outstanding debut for uh writer director star Josh Rubin. Yeah, I mean I'm really excited to see what he does. That I mean that can be a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> um but I think he he takes it seriously enough and he knows he knows what the fuck he's doing behind a camera right. just as much as he does in front of it. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited to see uh, what he comes up with next. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is like big, such big a great fan. screenplay too. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the Netflix homework now. This is Exorcist 3 from 1990. Um, and I'll let you uh, just... Descri- the streaming homework. I watched this on Amazon Prime. Thank you. And I watched it on Shudder. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, yes, it's it's... Very available right now. So don't give that, don't give Netflix that name recognition. They ain't paying our bills, boy. <laughs> the streaming homework, uh, Exorcist 3. So tell me what happens in this film. 
Okay. Uh, so this is set uh, something like 15 years after the uh, uh, the incident of uh, the original Exorcist movie. Again, if you haven't seen the Exorcist, fucking, I'm not going to give you the spoiler spiel. That movie is fucking 50 years old. Um, uh, so yeah, the exorcist three, uh, takes place after that. And there is a, um, uh, police officer played by George C. Scott. And, uh, he knew the priest, uh, from the original film, um, him and father Dyer, uh, both knew. Yeah. Damien Karras. Um, uh, the police officer, Kinderman is investigating these mysterious murders um, that match the M.O. of a serial killer from around the same time as as the original demonic possession from around 15 years ago. Um, but he was caught and murdered. But there's all these killings that match the profile in ways that weren't publicized in the paper that only... Uh, you know, other police officers would know about and only the killer himself. So I don't I guess I don't know how to go into it much more without going like crazy into the, the story. Yeah. Is is there a link to the demonic possession <laughs> earlier? Tune in and find out. Right. And, yeah, and I, we should say that the serial killer, the Gemini killer, is very much modeled after the killings of the Zodiac. Um, the actual serial killer from real life, the Zodiac Killer, um, which at the there time a, a, that this was uh, uh, yeah. made, the, that was still an unsolved mystery and stuff. So, and I guess it still sort of is, but um, there, yeah, it it was it had a lot more mystique. <clears throat> yeah, um, and it was also closer in people's memory than it is now. Um, which well, I wasn't the Gemini Killer like the same name as the one from Dirty Harry or. No, Scorpio. That was, was Scorpio, Scorpio killer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a lot of, like, uh, Zodiac-based uh, serial killers yeah. in fiction. And I think there's reasons behind that besides... Um, right. That we don't need to go into because that's, like, a whole other weird thing. Um, uh, yeah, so... You say something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so this movie has a bit of a reputation now. It was one of those things. Oh, Jesus. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> Demon. Uh, it was one of those things where. Pazuzu. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, there was there was a sequel in between these, obviously. This is Exorcist 3. Uh, even though this one essentially pretends like the second one never happened, um, which most people do. Uh, the second one, um, Exorcist to the Heretic, uh, directed by John Borman, was like famously like kind of laughably bad, and most people sort of forgot that it happened. And then this film came out much later, um, and sort of came and went. I, there is some uh, like behind the scenes stuff of like studio interference and like the you know, they had to reshoot the ending because the studio wanted one thing and uh William Peter Blatty wanted another. He based this upon his book, the novel <clears throat> the which was a sequel to the his his novel The Exorcist um just so called I, Legion and it was originally supposed to be directed by William Friedkin. 
Um, but Friedkin uh, fell off the project sort of at the last minute, and he ended up directing it, too. I think this is the only second film uh, Blatty ever directed. Um, so I, I have a question. Um, okay. The one on Shudder, because I, I, don't, I don't know. Because isn't there – there's a director's cut, right? Did right. we watch – which version did I want to say oh, the one I watched was about an hour 50 – and I want to say it's the same version you saw because they both use the the new art that was constructed by Scream Factory and Scream Factory released the sort of director's reconstruction mix of the film. It's not exactly a director's cut because there's some footage that just got totally lost. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the original ending and stuff like that. Just there's some stuff that just has been unearthed since the studio made him cut it. Um, mm-hmm. But... Scream Factory, when they released this, got a hold of Blatty and and the people involved, and they were able to get certain stuff and kind of construct what they had in mind. Um, so this this is a little bit closer to right than what people would have seen in theaters gotcha. in 1990. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so the movie kind of came and went, and um, uh, people sort of forgot about it, but. In recent years, there's been a lot more talk about Exorcist 3, Exorcist 3, and it's actually this really great movie and this unsung thing and whatever. And so that's why I kind of wanted to watch it. And I have to say, I did not get much out of it. I think it is really slow. I think it is talky as fuck. I paused it at about like the hour 10 mark. And there was only about a half an hour left in the movie, and almost nothing had happened at that point. And the stuff was happening in the background of the film. There's these murders, you know, those popping up. They're trying to piece things together. Almost everything happens off camera and very unceremoniously. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. George C. Scott just kind of walks in the room, and they're like, oh, that person's dead now. Anyway, <laughs> and you're like, and then they'll talk about it forever. It's like, why don't, it would have been better to like show us that scene instead of just monologue about it for 20 minutes. Um, and I, I get that to me, this feels, this is like the classic <laughs> movie made by a writer. And by a writer, I mean a novelist. It reminded me a lot of the mess that was um, Ridley Scott made The Counselor, which was, uh, the screenplay written by Cormac McCarthy, but it wasn't based on one of his books. He just wrote the screenplay. Oh, okay. And both movies feel very similar to me. They're very writerly. They're very obsessed with these kind of like these long bits of exposition and prose. And it's like character stuff that was really only work on a novel, but is just like super weighting down the momentum of, of, and the pacing of a film. And the scary stuff, it, it, the atmosphere sort of starts to build up and it kind of comes to a boiling point very too little too late as far as I'm concerned towards the last uh, 35 minutes of the film. And there's some good shocks and stuff in there. And there's some like kind of innovative special effects and stuff. And Brad Dorif has a few scenes in here where he steals the whole goddamn movie because he's Brad Dorif and he's fucking brilliant. Um... But, yeah, wasn't a fan. I found it really slow, really talky, pretty boring. And the stuff that I thought would end up being more of the emotional 
anchor of the film, which is this relationship between George C. Scott and this other priest. And like that kind of gets cut short. And then the movie just sort of meanders for the better part of 40 minutes before it finds its footing again. And I never really felt like I knew where I was supposed to be in the story. Like I felt like the story was kind of directionless uh, for way too long. And I just was not really thrilled with much of any of it. Um, and then at the end, it kind of just goes into, it does another exorcism scene, which is totally shoehorned in there. And after reading why that, that was stuff was added by the studio, they insisted there had to be an exorcism in their exorcist three. So it makes sense of why it feels a little out of place in the story, but mm -hmm. yeah, uh, uh, I, I guess I just don't, I don't get it. That's okay. So we actually have very different takes on this movie. Uh, so that's fun. I actually really liked this. Really? Okay. Uh, I really, I really dug it. Um, now, there is some stuff in here that is unintentionally funny. I want to get that out of the way at the beginning. Like okay. the Jesus bug eyes. Uh, and and uh, there, is, there is a moment in the second act where George C. Scott is explaining the M.O. of the fucking Gemini killer, and it is the most insanely <laughs> specific garbage I've ever heard. Yeah. It's like, but he didn't cut off this finger. He actually cuts off this finger, and he doesn't carve this sign here. He actually carved it here, <laughs> and he only did it on a Tuesday, and he only did it to people with names starting with the letter K. <laughs> it's like, what? Okay. Right. Um, yeah. So there is some stuff in, I mean, there is some stuff in here that I was like, okay, right. all right. Um, and we should say, generically speaking, there this movie's pretty different from The Exorcist. Well, yeah. Because The Exorcist is a, I mean, it was the first of its kind, but we, now what we call possession film, where you have your little kid or your little girl or your wife or whatever it is, it gets possessed in the beginning of the movie and makes weird noises and speaks in other voices. And it's just about, you know, looking into the, uh, uh, to the abyss. Whereas this film yeah. is a little bit of a police procedural, a little bit of a murder mystery, kind of a noir. I think that's, I think that's what I liked about it. It's so different from the first one. It's, yeah. I, I liked this, this, I like the idea. Uh, I, I loved George C. Scott in this, by the way, he's just this, Old ass yelly cop who just literally will walk into a room and break every fucking law possible. Right. He's just like, ah, I'm a fucking cop. <laughs> Fuck off. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to steal your lunch because I'm a cop. Whatever. Uh, he's just this ornery old bastard. Right. Um, uh, he, you know, and I, I loved the premise of like, tracking down a serial killer that's been dead and this mo like i do agree with a lot of your the stuff you said like that is there it is very talky it is very like describey uh it is very like but i i that stuff just didn't bother me i guess um like it it i don't know it it just i felt I just like thought a that lot there was of potential in all of that exposition especially if they're going to be working on pulp narratives or whatever like there's potential to go into scene and actually like do the movie not talk about the movie but actually do the movie i think it does that though like there there are moments where it does like i feel like it it does build to where you see more and more of this stuff um it it's a slow burn um but i i don't know i guess it I, again it didn't bother me um 
and there are some scenes that I thought were really well executed. Like I really enjoyed um, the 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 infamous scene with the nurse. Yeah, um, that's like the uh, one big like traditional shock moment like there's a an actual horror setup with a you know the camera lays back and actually just lets it play out and i wish that there had been more of that throughout yeah i i agree i see with what you're saying and i i do agree with you that i i would have liked to see some of that stuff more um but more of it worked for me than didn't work i i i can't say that anything you said was wrong um but I think that there was enough atmosphere and just the premise alone was enough and, and the the actors were enough to carry me through it. I loved, uh, like you said, um, what's the, the actor? Uh, Brad Dorif. Holy yeah. fucking shit. He He's has playing it to pieces. Monologue, yeah. this, this chunk in the, uh, like kind of the beginning of the third act that in my brain, I'm like, this is probably going on for a little too long. But I just loved watching him chew the scenery so much. Yeah. Uh, and they do this like cool effect with his voice that I'm like, this is fucking cool. Um, yeah, the exorcism part is like, is kind of out of nowhere. But again, I didn't hate it. I was <laughs> like, all right, here comes the exorcist. Let's fucking do this. Right. Because uh, I was like, of course this cop can't stop him. He's but not But you can exorcist. definitely tell that that was... After like added after the fact because the the movie has a well and it has a whole like, other climax not in the movie at all yeah, yeah. And the movie it's already done a whole other climax and then it just goes back to that and it like tries to inter and this is maybe the reconstruction thing but it tries to like tries to like cross cut the two situations so that they feel more married but they just don't yeah I there there was some stuff that was a little discordant there but again I guess I just enjoyed what I was getting so much that I I overlooked a lot of its flaws. I I like I acknowledge it's a flawed movie. Um but after watching, you know, I've been watching a lot of horror shit lately and because it's October. Mm -hmm. Like a movie like this worked for me a lot more than what uh our streaming homework at the beginning of the month images, which I felt was just like slow and fucking boring as as shit. And this, I was at least getting some of that pulp noir stuff. Um, yeah, I I was having fun with it, even the bad stuff. It, but it, but to me, it wasn't bad enough to make it campy or ruin it. It was no. just like I I mean I here's the thing. I think Blatty intended to make, especially off the reputation of Exorcist Two, intended to make sort of an elevated horror film. I think he was trying to make something more sort of grounded. And, um, which is actually in a weird way, kind of like indicative of like the whole like nineties horror aesthetic. Um, mm -hmm. this came out like, yeah. this came out in 1990. So, you know, it was probably made in 89 or 88 or whatever. So, but it definitely kind of like predates that sort of like, um, Silence of the Lambs, uh, detective film kind of thing. horror. Yeah. Thriller horror. Yeah. And seven and that kind of stuff. It like, definitely it's in that that wheelhouse um so i think it's trying to be adult and grown up and kind of you know this isn't a silly slasher film this isn't a a, a guy in the woods with a knife this is a serious film and i think that it like almost suffers because it's 
trying to be too high-minded. Like, I, I would have actually liked it to have been just a, a hair more genre. And, and specifically, I just, like, it's overwritten. It's over, it's, it's, it's simultaneously overwritten, and I have no the fuck idea what anyone's motivations are. And, <laughs> and I don't care. Like, I really, I, I mean, I, I guess know. I kind of know what, what George C. Scott's deal is sort of, except for the situation around him is changing so much. And you could say like, that's the point. Like, it's kind of like a, like a noir yeah, kind of thing what? where he's, you know, getting sucked into this mystery deeper and deeper and like reality starts to get like crazy or whatever. And I but I didn't feel like any existential pretty... dread for him. I didn't really feel like he was losing it at any point. I just felt like the movie doesn't know what it's trying to show us. I felt like they did a pretty good job of establishing early on that he's, you know, not really a believer and this right. this is yeah. and that's all kind of this like, is, like kind of a yeah, repeated from is, the Karis stuff from from the first yeah, one. Yeah, and and this is literally like you know, yeah, I I don't know. It it worked for me. And maybe it's because it's been so long since I've seen the original. Uh, and also, I got to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of the sort of demonic possession genre. Uh, I, I usually kind of hate those movies. No, I, and, I... And I think that might be some of why I enjoyed this is I was like... I it felt more in vain with Silence of the Lambs and Seven and that kind of like yeah. procedural thriller that I just enjoy more. No, again, and- I like that idea. I like the concept that I, I, this is like you know what I like to see from sequels rather than just doing the same thing but you know slightly different. I like the I like the idea of like just expanding the lore and the and the yeah. world of it and you know, genre wise shaking it up. Um, I like the idea of like a detective film with a supernatural element. Like that's cool. It just wasn't fun at all. And like didn't I do any of I was that having stuff. so much fun with this movie. Are you kidding me? It's not fun. Holy shit. The last half George... like the la- last third of the movie, when it gets into the stuff, I was I was having fun with it. But up until that point I'm like Okay, like I can't. I, I felt could like watch it was... George C. Scott walk into a room and yell at people for hours. <laughs> he is such an ornery bastard. Like I, I was really enjoying his performance. He was uh, like, there's this whole scene where he's in the hospital and like the doctor's yelling at him and he's just giving a look, and I loved it. Yeah. I, I thought I mean, it was so I mean, much fun. I love that. George C. Scott. Nothing against him. If you want to see a better George C. Scott horror film, watch The Changeling. But. Yeah, I I just thought this movie was kind of a slog. I didn't really get the hype. Um, but I, I, I mean, I we're get... gonna have to disagree to agree <laughs> on this one because I I guess so. I you say it's no fun. I thought it was a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, <laughs> I I get I kind of get what you're saying. There is a it feels like an, a solid a, a fifty minute first act or even longer, like an hour, like a sixty minute first act, and then like. A third act and no second act. Yeah, and there there is a solid chunk in the middle that I'm like I I was kind of feeling it. That like kind of between um the the one priest dying and the scene with the nurse, there is a solid chunk of stuff that doesn't matter. And, yeah. and, and I agree with you there. There's some little moments uh and stuff, but 
for the most part, this this movie worked for me more than it didn't. I I kind of get why people enjoy it. I I thought it was a hell of a lot of fun. All right, all right. Um, uh, well, that is the show then. And uh, next week we're not going to be doing a traditional episode. Um, we're gonna we're gonna try something out. Uh, a niche project I had in mind where we talk about a horror film made by a non-horror film director. I'm putting that in air quotes. Um, and then a, uh, a non-horror film made by a horror film director. So we'll be talking about uh, Robert Zemeckis's um, What Lies Beneath. Uh, and we'll also be talking about Wes Craven's Music of the Heart, um, which will usher us into November, I suppose. Um, and yeah, that, that's what we're going to be doing. So if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics we talked about on this episode, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of us on our social media. We're at, at mcguffinpod on Twitter and Instagram. Um, Facebook.com slash mcguffinpod is our Facebook group where we post news stories and the episodes and all that stuff. Uh, sometimes I do my the polls for the audience there. Um, so if you want to check that out, uh, go and follow us on all of our socials. You can also leave us a star rating and a review on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, Player.fm, Pocket Cast. Those are our most used uh, pod catchers. And you can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. Uh, and I think that's all I have for my stuff. Uh, you can follow me on uh, f- bullshit fucking garbage Twitter at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. I also have an art account um, at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Um, I am currently open for commissions, um, uh, so you can check out my page if you want to know more about that. I think that's pretty much it for me. All right. Okay. I think that is it for the episode then. You want to do cocaine? Are you actually asking me, or is this uh, the way that we're going to end the episode? Yes. (laughs) Bye.